You're listening to the Unheld in News and Review and Pharisee Watch, brought to you by We Hold These Truths. Each week, we look into the events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media, and we analyze these events. Just as in Jesus' day, Pharisees still walk the earth. Among them today are the celebrity Christians who support wars in the Middle East to protect Israel. In our Pharisee Watch portion of the program, we feature stories about the unchristlike acts of these modern-day Pharisees. Our programs are led by Charles E. Carlson, the founder of We Hold These Truths, and author and editor of the Pharisee Watch, and unheralded news features on our website, whtt.org. Joining Chuck are four other founders of We Hold These Truths. Travis Steele is the owner of Steele Engineering. Mark Horton is the president of Ultra Clean Corporation. Chuck McCollum is the owner of Oakshade Development. And Tom Compton is a retired sales engineer and your announcer. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Ford. Welcome to our podcast. In today's podcast for Pharisee Watch and Unheralded News, we're going to concentrate in Israel and on Israel. And we're actually tipping our hats to the opposition in Israel. And there are opposition people there, just as there are opposition people here in the United States. They're not all asleep, just like we're not all asleep in the United States. Although it seems like the people that are asleep or want us to stay asleep outnumber those who are awake to what's going on. But these items I got from Haritz, which is a Israeli publication, and it's the intelligentsia of Israel, and it has a, a wide range of views. I didn't pick deliberately. There were some items that were definitely pro-government that uh, we could get just from our media here, too, just the same type of thing. But these are thinking people here, opinions and stories that we're going to go through tonight. There's six different stories here. They're all kind of related because they're around Israel. And the first one is from Haritz, dated the 13th of September. Leslie, why don't you read this for us, or give us the highlights for it anyway. Sure. Erdogan, Israel's mentality is a barrier to Mideast peace by Barak, Ravid, Jack Khoury, and Reuters. Turkish Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan told a meeting of Arab League foreign ministers in Cairo on Tuesday that the mentality of the Israeli government serves as an obstacle to peace in the Middle East and stressed the need for recognition of a Palestinian state. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said during a tour on the Egyptian border that, quote, eventually common sense and logic prevail both on our side and on the other side, unquote. Quote, the barrier to peace in the region is the mentality of the Israeli government, unquote, Erdogan said. Quote, the people in Israel are under a blockade, by its government, unquote. He insisted that Turkey will not return to normal relations with Israel until it apologizes for the 2010 Gaza flotilla raid, compensates the families of the victims, and lifts the blockade of the Gaza Strip. 
Without directly mentioning Israel, Erdogan added that, quote, every country must pay for the terror acts it carries out, unquote. Erdogan also stressed that Turkey believes no country is above international law. Quote, Turkey will take every possible step to ensure the freedom of movement in the eastern Mediterranean, unquote. Moreover, the Turkish premier emphasized that the recognition of a Palestinian state was, quote, not an option, but an obligation, unquote. Okay, well, that, that was an uh, item on the, on the news. And so this is a response in their opinion section of Haritz. It's entitled, The Israeli Government's Inability to Say Sorry. Travis, would you give us some highlights from that, please? Sure. It's by Anner Shalev. Why is it so hard to say sorry? What is it about this combination of syllables that makes their pronunciation as difficult as crunching gravel? Why is the government placing itself in danger of international isolation, the deterioration of security and economic damage amounting to billions, just so this two-syllable word won't pass its lips? Why is the Prime Minister investing hundreds of hours on deliberations and the appointment of one envoy after another and endless wordings and zigzags over the matter of an apology to the Turks without achieving any results and with disastrous implications. One of the amazing, almost bizarre things about the responses to the social protest as expressed is the expression of empathy from nearly every quarter. The Prime Minister and the Ministers of Finance and the Housing began this trend at a press conference in July in which they spoke of themselves as being understanding of the housing protest. How can it be that all, all those directly responsible for social injustice are expressing solidarity with the protest against it? What is the meaning of the unbearable lightness of the expression of empathy in contrast to the unbearable difficulty of making an apology? It seems that these concepts are closely related, but in practice the expression of empathy and the request of forgiveness is nearly a contradictory process. Apology means taking responsibility, while empathy is a flight from responsibility and places it on others. Apology is the beginning of making a correction, while empathy is the beginning of a spin, an attempt to cleanse one's conscience while refraining from self-criticism, a process that blurs the difference between those who cause injustice and the victims of injustice. Empathy is a sly weaponry. Nothing is more dangerous. Whose goal is to wipe out protest? It's amazing to see that after eight weeks of protest, there is not even one person in Lucid or the entire political system or the private market who will come out and say simply and directly, we were wrong, we sinned, we exploited, abandoned, shook off responsibility, and now we will correct those wrongs and ensure a decent life to those who are exploited. In our pirate state, there are many confessions, but each one admits only to the sins of others. Wow, thank you, Travis. And, of course, the social unrest there has been going on. They've had large demonstrations. They estimated 500,000 here, which represents about 5% of the population. So it would be the equivalent of 
having 25 million Americans protest. And, of course, we've seen protests in America because of social unrest, and it hinges a lot on the fact that we are a war-based economy, as we've talked about, just as Israel is. And so the Israelis are going to have to face the wrath of of these people that have suffered these injustices, just as the United States government is going to be facing as the economy continues to crumble here. The next item, I think, is another excellent piece, and I want Leslie to, to read this whole piece. It's called A Matter of Character. It's by Nehemia Strassler. And again, I don't know who she is, but it's a very well-reasoned, or it's a man, excuse me. I see his picture right here. Yes. Leslie? One day, the scorpion decided to cross the river, but since he didn't know how to swim, he asked the frog to take him on his back. The frog took a lot of convincing, but eventually he agreed. However, when they reached the middle of the river, the scorpion stung the frog. Why did you do that? the frog asked. Now both of us are going to die. There's nothing I can do about it, the scorpion replied. It's my nature. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu also only wants to get through his term of office safely. He doesn't want to turn Turkey into an enemy and also does not intend to cause relations with Egypt to deteriorate. He really does not want to fight with the United States, the only ally we have left. What can be done? That is his nature. He is convinced he can fool the entire world all the time to speak about a two-state solution but refuse to make any concession to call for direct negotiations, but to present the other side with illogical demands. But then the moment comes when the entire world sees that it is a bluff, and then we start to drown. In a matter of two and a half years, Netanyahu has succeeded in bringing Israel to an unprecedented strategic low to a situation in which we are lying on the ground with hands covering our heads while everyone happily kicks us without the slightest fear. The government of Turkey sends our ambassador packing with scorn and then gives instructions to cut off military and commercial ties and even makes an oblique hint about using its country's ships against us in the Mediterranean. The military regime in Egypt warns us not to dare to take action in Gaza because the shaky peace treaty between us will be in danger of cancellation. But what hurts most and is most dangerous is that meeting in the White House at which Netanyahu was described by the former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates as being, quote, ungrateful toward the United States and endangering the country by refusing to deal with Israel's growing isolation and with the demographic challenges it faces if it keeps control of the West Bank, unquote. Obama nodded in agreement. He is completely fed up with Netanyahu. The basic reason for this collapse in Israel's status is the occupation, because The occupation brings down moral standards and clouds the difference between good and bad. And as time goes on, 
the occupying power begins to believe that what it did not succeed in solving with strength, it will solve with greater strength. And then the army begins to be the main factor in society and we find ourselves involved in violent incidents and serious conflicts, even with those who could have been our very best friends. Netanyahu's escape route from the diplomatic low to which he has brought us runs via the economy. He believes it is possible to argue with the entire world to continue the conflict with the Palestinians, but to achieve economic growth and a higher standard of living. He is not prepared to understand that peace is an essential condition for a healthy and thriving economy. Now, it is true that it is possible for a certain amount of time to enjoy a reasonable economic situation even without peace, but that doesn't work for an extended period because without peace, everything is unstable, everything is likely to collapse at any moment. Remember the severe economic crisis during the Second Intifada? An economy is built on expectations, and when Israel turns into an isolated state and a pariah, its risk level rises, and large numbers of companies all over the world do not want to have anything to do with it. Already, there are large workers' organizations that boycott Israeli products and ports where they are not prepared to offload Israeli goods. And this merely gets worse by the day. It was with good reason that the governor of the Bank of Israel, Stanley Fisher, got so upset this week when he heard about the possibility of trade with Turkey being affected and said that this would have a detrimental effect on Israel's economy. And we have not yet mentioned the giant defense budget, which comes at the expense of intra structures, society, and welfare, and which is a result of the ongoing conflict. That is to say, it is impossible to perform a miracle. It is not possible to enjoy a stable economy that grows over an extended period and supplies decent social services without achieving peace. At a meeting held this week between Netanyahu and Shah's spiritual leader, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, the Prime Minister said he was blushing as he left the room. He was referring to the affectionate slaps on the face he had received from the rabbi. But the truth of the matter is that there should have been another reason for blushing, the shame Netanyahu should feel for having brought us to this deepest of low points, isolation and weakness. Thank you. Wow, what a powerful editorial piece here. It reminds me of our book that we published a few years ago. We entitled it One Nation Under Israel because it was a sensational title. It was originally written in 1992, I believe, under the title Holocaust to Saving Israel from Suicide. And I think now, if we were to redo it, we did that in about 1996, I think 1998, uh, when we we did the reissuing of the book under the One Nation Under Israel. But 
it, in very good detail in this book, and it's still available from us, talks about this policy of national suicide. And the book basically quotes Jewish sources. So here is a further proof that an Israeli citizen here is warning against another impending disaster. A follow-up story here, uh, another opinion piece, is entitled, Netanyahu Living by the Sword Does Not Cut It. And this is by a Nehemiah Strasler. And I'll just read part of this here. This year, as always, the big battle is between the Treasury and the Defense Ministry, and they're referring to Israel. In a normal year, the battle is over the size of the addition to the budget of the Israel Defense Forces. This year, as a result of the social protest movement, the arm wrestling contest is over the size of the reduction. Defense Minister Ehud Barak is doing everything possible to prevent a deep cut. Finance Minister Yuval Steinitz, in contrast, is demonstrating responsibility, saying, we won't increase the overall budget, but we will reduce the amount associated to security so we'll have money to give to the social protest. But is it truly possible to reduce the military budget significantly for an extended period of time, given the current policy of the Netanyahu government? After all, this government has led us into unprecedented weakness and international isolation. Relations with Turkey are at a worrying nadir, with Ankara even threatening to send warships to protect the next flotilla to the Gaza Strip. Prime Minister Recep Erdogan is continually stepping up his rhetoric, and yesterday he met with Egypt's top officials in order to forge a strategic military-economic alliance that is aimed in part against Israel. Our relations with Egypt are at a historic low. The ambassador was forced to flee Israel, and there's no telling when, we, when he will return to Cairo. Israeli business people are cutting the scope of their dealings with Egypt and are arranging to meet with their counterparts from that country and Europe only. A big anti-Israel demonstration is set to take place in Jordan on Thursday night. The aim is to force their way into the embassy and drive out the ambassador. They want, they want in on the hate fest, too. One week from today, on September 20th, the United Nations is expected to hear a request to recognize an independent Palestinian state. There is a clear and present danger of hostile acts, perhaps even a third intifada. And it goes down here. Knesset Finance Chairman Moshe Gaffney recently said that the Netanyahu government has given the Haredim more than any of its precedents. Now, the Haredim is the most conservative of Orthodox Jews. It's a branch of, and they get special concessions, as it points out or continues on. Indeed, the state lays out one billion new Israeli shekels each year on yeshivas, which are the educational institutions where they study primarily the Talmud and the Torah. And so that young Haredi man not only doesn't work, but also receives 2,500 new Israeli shekels a month from his yeshiva and other 900 new Israeli shekels directly from the state. The state also gives him a subsidized apartment, a discount on municipal taxes, and near-free education. Even if his wife works outside the home, the family pays no income tax 
on account of the large number of children. In other words, they live off the non-Haredi taxpayer, and from Steinitz's perspective, this is just and right. So uh, they've got their problems. Uh, he goes on a little bit here, but they've got the same kind of problems we see here in the United States. We've delegated special privileges to people, and we've got people that are living uh, on welfare and getting a ways, uh, finding ways around it and not having to work and so forth, while the rest of us are paying for this nonsense. So obviously there's friction. There's friction here in the United States, and there's friction just from reading these editorials in Israel. So our next item is time for Israel to put out the fire with Egypt by, this is a Haritz editorial. Would you read the couple of comments there, please, Leslie? The storming of Israel's embassy in Cairo is the climax of the public protest in Egypt against Israeli policy, especially against the killed soldiers, Israel's response to the terror attack near Alayat last month. It's natural for the events to raise deep concerns about the future of the peace agreement between the two countries. The rules of the game with Egypt have changed. The policy of winks and tacit agreements of the days of former President Hosni Mubarak are now on trial and cannot survive. Public oversight of the new regime's domestic and foreign policy is greater than it has been in 60 years. For the strategic alliance with Egypt, Jordan, Turkey, and other countries to survive, Israel will have to propose real policies and solutions to the conflict with the Palestinians. It must drop the empty slogans about prestige and national pride and recognize the deep change in its status that has begun. Excellent. And, of course, we get all the rhetoric here in the U.S. about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and it is all rhetoric from our governors, from George Bush and what President Obama said here this year also. Our last story is titled, Israel Must Remember Its Negev Bedouin are citizens. Bedouins are the they're nomads and they live in the Negev Desert, which is pretty sparse there. But this this was a, another opinion piece. Travis, would you read this for us? Please? Sure. The decision by the cabinet on Sunday approving the Prower Report's plan to regulate the Bedouin communities in the Negev is an unfortunate continuation of an insensitive policy which is leading to unnecessary friction between the government and the citizens of the country. The Bedouin of Negev are above all citizens of the state of Israel, but the government doesn't treat them as such. The Netanyahu government excels in laying out grandiose, expensive, impractical master plans. Even if ultimately 30,000 citizens are not evicted by force from their homes, the plan's threatening tone already deepens the strong lack of confidence already prevalent among the Bedouin. The government must show the Bedouin who have suffered from prolonged neglect that it is prepared to adopt a new approach. Well, maybe Israel should take a lesson from our treatment of the Indians. We finally resolved it, but you look at the, the there's still resentment that exists today. I mean, we've made great strides 
to honor our word with the Indians here, and they've suffered greatly for it. So Israel is headed for the same kind of thing, what they've done to the Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank with the settlers. There was another piece on the on the settlers who get special compensations too, just like these Orthodox Jews get compensated for not working, going to school, and so forth. That's our report for tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.